Where do you think that came from, him saying that to you? Media is a hard business. It's a pain in the ass to run, mm. and it's very challenging. And so the odds that you're going to make good money are hard, and it is, uh, mm. it's very, very challenging. Welcome to The Shakeup. I'm Alexis Gay. And I'm Brianne Kimmel. And each week, we explore the business decisions that dare to be different and the leaders who are shaking up their industries. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Inbound 2021 is hosted with love by HubSpot. The fully immersive online event is weeks away, running October 12th to the 14th, and we want to give you a chance to upgrade to an all-access powerhouse pass. That's right. Learn transformative business tactics from some of your favorite companies like Shopify, Google, LinkedIn, AWS, and more. To enter to win upgraded passes, use the promo code SHAKEUP when you register for your free starter pass. No purchase necessary. To learn more, head to inbound.com slash shakeup. Good luck. Oh, boy, Brianne, big episode of The Shakeup today. Are you ready? I'm so excited. This is going to be one of the most fun episodes. Today on the show, we're talking with Sam Parr, the founder of The Hustle and the host of the My First Million podcast. Sam, welcome to The Shakeup. What's going on? We had uh, Bri on our show recently, and we're reciprocating, so I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you. It do, it feels like a little bit of a crossover episode since we're both a part of the HubSpot podcast network. Yeah, that's it, it's been cool, right? Sam, what's awesome is you've already recorded 209 episodes on your podcast, My First Million. Is that right? Yeah. Sean, my co-host, it was his idea. And him and I would do these things every Tuesday where we would meet and just brainstorm ideas back and forth. And we would do it really quickly. And we did it for years. And he was like, hey, you just want to do this on air? And I said, oh, yeah, all right, sure. And uh, it's, on, it's done okay. It, it's, people seem to dig. I mean, you have a super engaged audience, and I know that uh, you've been able to put a lot of really amazing content out there, both, you know, obviously the newsletter and the podcast and so much more. I guess my first question is, going back to when you went to school in Nashville for music business, do I have that right? Yeah. Definitely, it's sort of an unexpected career trajectory going from music business into what you do now, or is it expected to you? But not really, right? Media, no. So I was like every like 16-year-old bro, and I saw like Ari Gold on Entourage, and I was like, <laughs> Ari Gold is awesome. The Entourage <laughs> show is so cool, and I Amazing. wanted to be like Ari Gold, but okay. I, I, didn't, I didn't do so good in school, and so I couldn't get into UCLA or Michigan. It's a bullshit degree, though. I think you should only go into debt or pay like 50 or 60 or $70,000 a year if you go to a top 20 university. If you don't, just bail. Go to state school or community school or don't go to school. Wow, Sam, I think you're the first person in tech to ever recommend that kids don't go to college. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say that. My kids, I want them to go to Harvard. So Sam, going back to you and your your music business degree in Nashville, I'm curious, Nashville, big music city, who are you listening to? Give us the soundtrack to you at that time in your life. Avid Brothers. Oh, yes. Love that. I like them a lot. Who else did I like? I don't know. I liked a little bit of everyone. You know what band is a guilty pleasure is The Killers. I like The Killers a lot. Oh, oh The Killers, killers are, are so good. Is yeah. that a guilty pleasure? Should we be feeling guilty about that? No, maybe like One Republic is a little bit guiltier, but <laughs> I like some of the pop rock stuff. So anyway, I didn't end up studying music business. So I, when I was there, I worked for this guy. Do you guys Have you seen that TV show American Pickers? Yeah, yeah. So I met him on the street, Mike, the main guy in the street, and I became friends with him. And eventually I worked for him and I opened up a store in Nashville. So like the TV show where they buy stuff and they bring it to the store and they they appraise it. I I helped run the store in Nashville. 
That's right. That's so cool. Yeah, it was really badass. And so we would have all types of musicians come in because Mike was like famous amongst musicians. And we would sell stuff to like Jack White, Keith Urban. And I lived right next to Third Man Records. Oh, sick. Yeah, I lived a few blocks away from it. And so when I was there, I worked for Mike. And then from there, I started my first hot dog stand. And that was my first entrepreneur endeavor. So you were working on American Pickers. How did you decide to start a hot dog truck? Not a truck. A stand. Do you love hot dogs? I mean, I like meat. Okay. No, I don't like Is it anymore. Is that where it came from? You're like, no, all right. No, it didn't. I love meat. No. So it, the reason why you, it has to be important that it's not a, a truck is because yes. there's different laws. And so the okay. barrier to entry for a stand is very low. So I was able to get one for 500 bucks. Oh, love that. I don't actually care about, I don't, I didn't, I don't know how to cook. I still don't, but yeah. uh, it was just, I just lucked into it. And I had a funny shtick where it was called mm. Southern Sam's wieners as big as a baby's arm. And if you, <laughs> if you put your baby's arm in a bun and put mustard on the bun, and like we could take a picture of it. Then you got a free hot dog. And it was kind of oh, funny. Oh, that's brilliant. I was listening to your show uh, earlier today. And something that really stuck out to me that I do feel like sets you apart in terms of how you talk about business is that you have a lot of true hands-on real world experience with operating a business and businesses of all kinds. It's not like you're someone who maybe went into entertainment business right out of school and then they just sort of sat behind a computer and ran a media company. But like you really ran a hot dog stand. That's where you started. And I feel like it's that real world experience that informs, at least as a listener, a lot of um, your perspective on how to run a business, a profitable business. Yeah, it was great. On a slow day, you make 200 bucks. On a really good day, I walk home with $1,000, $2,000 of cash in my pocket. It, and when you're uh, 21 yeah, years old, that's, you're rich. It was a lot of fun. It's so hard, though. When I was doing it, I mm. was like, I need to make money on the internet. This is so hard. It's just physically demanding. Yeah, and it's hot out there. Have you seen my skin? I'm like very white and I would get like the worst (laughs) sunburn. It was so hot. And I started an online store and I would be in class um, and my phone would be going ka-ching, ka-ching. And that was like a sale. And I would like walk out of class with $1,000 in my PayPal account. And I'm like, oh man, this is way better. What was that business? So it was an online liquor store. But eventually I got rid of that and I got rid of the hot dog stand and I moved out to San Francisco because I cold emailed this guy named Brian and he had a company called Airbed and Breakfast. And I was like, hey, (laughs) this sounds like a cool thing. Like, I want to interview. I think I can help make it better by doing X, Y, and Z. And they were like... Are you, are you in the Bay Area? And I was like, yeah, 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 I'm there. And he goes, all right, great, come to the office on Monday. And so, of course, I wasn't there. So I yeah. booked a flight and I flew out there and I got an interview there. And um, that's how I got introduced to like startups. And then I eventually got rid of all my stuff and moved to San Francisco. Wow. Wow. Sam, that's a big difference. Selling hot dogs, selling moonshine, <laughs> to then going to work at what, of course, became Airbnb. How did you identify that that was a startup you really saw potential in to the point that you were willing to move your entire life, every hot dog you had to your name, out to California. (laughs) Every hot dog. That's funny. I don't know. I don't really think too far ahead of what was going to happen. Oh, really? When I was like talking and telling my parents about it, they're like, this sounds like a Ponzi scheme. You like stay on people. (laughs) I love how many uh, times my parents have said something like that when I describe a tech company to them. (laughs) So anyway, uh, how did I know that it was Airbnb, that they were going to be interesting? Um, I didn't. I I, I had no idea. It was a total guess. 
Um, it sounded cool. Mm. One of their fifth or eighth employees, something like that, was a guy named Chris Lukasik, and okay. he was a famous runner, and I was a runner. I went to school on an athletic scholarship for track and field, and he quit his professional career as a runner, which isn't exactly lucrative, but he quit it sure. to work as like the eighth employee or something at Air Be- It was mm. at the time Air Bed and Breakfast, and I was like, damn, yeah. if this guy went to Georgetown, he's probably smart, and he yeah. quit his running career. So I'm in, and so that's how I got looped in. And would you say you're a competitive person? You mentioned you were an athlete for a time. Yeah, I want to crush people. Yes, I enjoy competing. Right after this, I'm going to my boxing lesson. I enjoy one-on-one competition. It's very fun. Has there ever been a time when being that competitive didn't work in your favor? Yeah, it's super unhealthy. Yes. Really? It's mentally exhausting. I pick my battles now, but whenever like... I remember like when people make fun of me from my high school sure. and college years. And I'm like, yeah. that, that's why I'm like going to start a company. I'm 100% fueled by like rude things people said to me when I, that and I probably deserved it when I was 14. Hmm. I don't know, Brianne, what what do you think about that? I'm laughing over here because I box a few days a week. So had I had known that you were into boxing, Sam, this could have been a very different experience. I'm down to spar sometime. Let's do it. You see how my teeth are all chipped? It's cuz I got punched in the face a few weeks ago. <laughs> oh, no. I'm not joking. Let's go. You also said that you don't think it's healthy, but do you think it's sustainable? Do you think that the way that you're motivated right now and fueled right now can take you through the rest of your career? Well, it depends how long my career is, but yeah, I do. (laughs) I I think that a lot of men who I look up to are pretty nutty. And then in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, they start calming down or when they have kids. I mean, my dad was a a wild guy. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that once I have kids who are a little bit more grown, uh, yeah, I think I'll calm down a little bit. But uh, yeah, I think it's sustainable for a while. When you say those men you look up to who are wild, who are you thinking of? I like to read a lot of history books. I'm inspired by um, a lot of people from the 1880s to the 1930s. Post-Civil War, like 1870, we were uh, kind of the Wild West. Anything went. There was very little regulation, a lot of Mm. rules that we take for granted now. You could do anything. So people like John Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, folks like that, I love reading about. I find them to be very fascinating. Cornelius Vanderbilt. These are basically the people who shaped America, what it is now. I enjoy reading about people like that. I, I enjoy reading about Lewis and Clark, basically people who faced um, massive amounts of uncertainty, but who did it anyway. And I don't care if they made it or not, to be honest, even if they fail, it's cool to me. Um, Well, that's very tech. And it's very like 2010, 2015 tech culture, right? I thought that period in San Francisco was freaking awesome. Did you guys live there in 2010 to 2015? I thought it was fun. It was a little bit more innocent, a little bit... uh, I was in New York at the time. I moved out of San Francisco in 2016, but I was working in the tech startup world in New York. And it was a lot of, it was kind of chaotic in a lot of ways, but a lot of free t-shirts though. Yeah, it was more nerdy. It was more nerdy. It was nerdy. so nerdy. <laughs> it was a I sim- kind of loved it. Time. It was a simpler time. Yeah. yeah, it was It was a lot different and the scandals were way less and uh, it was fun. I had a great time in San Francisco in that time. I think the scandals were just less public. I believe the scandals were still happening to the same degree, but I think we didn't hear about them as often. Yeah. Yeah. But if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, does it make a sound? (laughs) So that's kind of how it is, I guess. This is a great segue looking at tech and startup culture. I'd love to spend some time and learn about what was that initial inflection point or that initial idea that led to the hustle? Our initial idea was, so I basically launched this thing called HustleCon. I created the website and I announced it 
I mean, I didn't have many people to announce it to, but I announced it on like June 1st. And I think it happened on July 15th. There was a six week period and it made like 60 grand in profit. And I thought it totally wasn't going to work. I thought maybe I would just kill some time and meet someone to start something with. and And it worked. And then I did it again. And this time it made a quarter of a million dollars in profit. Whoa, wait. And so this, I'm sorry, just timeline wise. So are you saying this predates the newsletter and the show? Yeah, I started that in 2015. And basically I would, or maybe 14 and 15, I would Mm -hmm. host, I would host an event get money and ride my motorcycle around the country, host an event, <laughs> make money and ride my motorcycle. Like I would, I would travel. That's so interesting. But was it just you building it? Like are we, it's just you and a computer and a motorcycle at this point? With HustleCon, yeah, I was the only yeah. employee. Wow. Yeah, and I had a team of volunteers. Oh really, what were, what were they doing? When people showed up to the event, they would hand them a bottle of water, things like that. Okay. It's interesting because to have volunteers means that there was a community and there were people that were really rallying behind what you were doing. What types of people were these and what got them so excited about the hustle? It wasn't called the hustle back then. It was just called, it was this event called HustleCon. Sure. The idea was it was non-technical founders. We had Katrina Lake. She started Stitch. Stitch Yeah. And we had her right when she had raised her seed round, I believe. Um, and then we had um, Jess Lee, the woman who started Polyvore. And then we had, um, who else did we have back then? I forget uh, everyone who it was, but a lot of companies that are quite big now, we would have mm-hmm. them come and speak at our event. And Jess wasn't technical. Katrina talked about how she built Stitch Fix using an Excel model. Stitch Fix is like, what, a $3 billion company? Right. And so it was all about people who founded companies that were tech companies, but they didn't know how to code. Yeah. And so that was the original niche at first. Why was that the original niche that you picked? I didn't pick it. I knew someone who had hosted this uh, event as a meetup ahead of t- like before. Oh, and I met these guys okay. and I was like, hey, can I, I don't have anything to do. Can I take this over? And their thing was like pretty small, but they let me take it over. And I um, just gave them a small cut of the profit. The way that I got the people to buy tickets was I created a newsletter yeah. and I would write about the speakers in like a fun way. And I read the biography of Ted Turner and I was like, well, this guy sounds fascinating. I think I could create a media company. And so in 2016, hmm. April 19th of 2016, the hustle uh, we launched as an email. And I had this blog prior to that where I was able to get millions of people to come to the website and 3% or 3,000 people would give me their email. Uh, or is that 30,000? Whatever it was, like it was a fair amount of people. And um, I would get their email, then I would write more and send my articles to them, and then they would share it some more, and I would get all this traffic. And then eventually, I read about the, uh, this company called Daily Candy, which they were a newsletter company. Oh, yeah, with, of course. Sold, yeah, and I was like, you know, instead of blogging, I should just only do an email. I wanted to create this daily email that reached millions of people uh, for the business and tech world, and then I wanted to make profits through advertising, and I wanted to use those profits to invest in cool companies and then tell my audience uh, the cool companies that we invested in. And I thought that it would create this interesting cycle And so that was the original idea. And we ended up selling before we got to the third part of investing in companies, but we made a lot of profit through ads and we built a big audience. Nice. So then as you started building out the newsletter and then even if that wasn't your intention, as you started building the media company itself, who starts getting involved? How did you bring the right team together? I've messed up a lot. I hired a lot of the wrong people, but basically the event made something like Two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars in the first year of business, and it was mostly profit. I think I could spend like I forget the exact numbers twenty grand on a on a two hundred fifty thousand dollar event. So that would be like almost all wow. profit. 
So that means the speakers weren't charging serious fees at that point. No, because like we would have like the founder of Bonobos or uh, OK Cupid or like I said, Katrina or all these people. And they're like, I don't I'm, you know, I'm not a professional speaker, but I would love to come and I'll tell my story. Eventually, HustleCon had two or three thousand people in the audience. Yeah. And it was like, look, the value is that you're going to be able to recruit from yeah. here. We're going to talk about you in the daily email. We're going to talk about you here. So it was a yeah. very fair exchange. Totally. And some, sometimes if it uh, if they asked for flights to be covered or hotel, we would cover that. Moving away from just the in-person events, I want to hear a little bit more about the media company itself. Was there a moment when you realized, oh, I'm building a media company? I don't remember. Look, I'm a content producer, so I'm, I'm a writer. Mm. I wouldn't call myself a journalist. I would call myself a blogger. But I had always done it. And eventually, we got 100,000 or 200,000 email subscribers in our first year. And we were able to get there through blogging. Mm. So we did like 300 in like the first half of the year in, in conference revenue and then like another 200 in ad revenue. So it took like nine months to get ad revenue. The second year, I think we did 2.2 million. The third year, maybe five and then maybe seven and then 13. And then we mm-hmm. this year we could have done 20, I think. And so it probably wasn't until like year two or where we're making like $2 million. I'm like, oh, wow. All right. This could maybe actually become a legitimate thing. Totally. Uh, do you think that email subscribers are as valuable today as a metric as they were when you first started building the hustle? No, I think our timing was perfect. Yeah, I agree. Because I, I was thinking about it, and you, especially when you mentioned Daily Candy, this reminds me of this specific moment in time where building that email list was everything. That was currency. But now with so many other streams of content, I don't think it has the same value. It's so much harder now. Although, check this out, though. When we got acquired, we had 1.8 or close to 2 million subscribers. I forget Uh the exact number. And our open rate was like 48% every day. Oh, shit. Wow. Yeah, and that's the other thing, too, right? Without the context of the open rate, your subscriber count basically means nothing. Yeah, so we would actually measure on opens. Yeah, for sure. And to build that now, it'd be way more expensive. Substack wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. Substack is cool, but uh, now everyone's into email. When we started, I remember the founder and CEO of a huge media company in New York. You definitely know who they are. I told him what we were doing and he he was an asshole to me. He kind of dismissed me. He was like, this business won't ever make more than $2 million a year. (laughs) Where do you think that came from, him saying that to you? Media is a hard business. It's a pain in the ass to run Mm. and it's very challenging. And so the odds that you're going to make good money are hard and uh, Mm. it's very, very challenging. I also think that he's just a smug prick. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's a New York thing. The New York people are assholes. Where I'm from in the Midwest, people are way... Aren't you, Brianne? Aren't you from the Midwest? People are I way am. nicer. I am. I'm from the Midwest. Yeah, I'm from, I'm from Ohio. Okay, well, let me tell you, everybody from the East Coast thinks you're soft. So I'm just letting <laughs> you know that as an East Coaster. <laughs> maybe. Well, maybe Sorry soft. Sorry you can't hang. I understand you. Sam, you seem like someone who needs to be coddled, so I'll be extra sensitive for the rest of the interview. Yeah, um, the New Yorkers oh, are just Sam. assholes. <laughs> well, I... So an, an, an interesting thing here, and I'm going to put you on, on the hot seat for a little bit, but one, one thing that's interesting is that from the transition from HustleCon, which had Katrina Lake and a lot of female founders, you know, when I looked up, you know, a lot of the uh, mentions of the hustle is, you know, publications like Digiday have called the hustle decidedly bro, which I think is mm. a really interesting position because when I look at, you know, when the hustle was getting started, you know, on it, it, it seemed like that was around the same time as like peak girl boss movement, where there were a lot of new nut publications and newsletters that were getting started specifically for women in business. 
I like the angle and the direction that you took with the hustle because it had a very clear tone of voice and had a very clear audience. Was that something that was intentional? Yes. So when we started, we very purposely were like, who do we want to love us? But then also, Mm -hmm. we're okay pissing off a certain type of person. I was the original writer. Eventually, um, we actually had only women writing. Our first hires were only women. And people would call us bro. And I'm like, well, I mean, like, well. <laughs> I don't think that's accurate, but whatever, that's fine. I think they called us that was when I started the company, I was 24 or 25. And yeah. I probably was a bro. I would think I think I was a little bit more nerdy than bro, but yeah. I understood why people would call me that. Um, and I was the main writer. And we mm-hmm. had a very distinct voice. And we would insult people, but it was always in a, in a have fun with them, not make fun of people. We tried our hardest never to put people down. But if we did make fun of people, it was like, for example, do you remember when, um, like when Apple first came out with a thumbprint on the iPhone? Oh, we yeah. like we like wrote this article and we like do you remember in the big Lebowski where he's like you need a t- if you need a toe dude I'll get you a toe or like <laughs> or like or like I'll get you a toe and we're like well like wouldn't that what you do if someone like cause, and there was a story about someone um dying or something like that and they couldn't unlock their phone and I'm like dude if you need a toe or, or a finger I'll get you a finger like so, <laughs> and so like that was like the the humor so like is that broy I guess maybe but. Well, I want to ask you one more question on that topic, and then I I do want to dig in a little bit more to this, what we're seeing right now around media and business and how many companies are actually media companies and things like that. But as the hustle continues to evolve, how much are you actively thinking about what kind of tone and culture you're putting out there versus, hey, I'm just staying true to myself. This is me. And so I'm going to let it fly. I pay attention a lot to it. I mean, both answers are, are how I feel. So like with our podcast, I often have to ask myself, like for, I'll do shit that I like regret where I'll say something. I'm like, oh my God, that's not how I feel. Why did I say oh, that? Really? And I'm sure you guys are beginning to experience this now, particularly because you both have, I mean, you already have Twitter following, so you know the game. But when you are, when people are listening to your voice for a long time, you say stuff that you don't always feel. And you're, mm. and so I, I think constantly about what I'm saying and making sure what I say is, I don't care about if it's appropriate or not, but if it's how yeah. I truly feel. What do you do when you realize you said something that doesn't align with how you feel anymore? I talk to my wife. I'm like, hey, uh, what's your opinion of this? And then also, when I started my company, I was 24 or 25, I think. And the values that I stood for then are not what I stand for now. And mm-hmm. I basically, like, I was like, you got to fire people. And I'm sorry, this isn't what I'm about anymore. You just kind of got to grow publicly a little bit. And I think if you just say you're sorry, or this is a very easy thing to say, you're like, yeah, I know. I said that then. I don't feel that way, though. I actually, yeah, my yeah, opinion yeah. has evolved. I gathered new information. I grew. And so I don't regret what I I mean, I, it's not, we're not talking about anything like crazy here, by the way. <laughs> I really like, Sam, what you said about being willing to sort of grow publicly this that is one of the things about being somebody who is putting themselves out there in public you also do have to be willing to then hold yourself accountable and grow and it sounds like maybe you'll be someone that we can come and have a whiskey with the first time someone gets really upset about something we say on the show yeah it's uh it's gonna happen i think that like it's yeah it's like it's not if it's it's when if you do 200 episodes, that's 200 hours of talking. You're going to say something, something dumb and, and you're going to get right. criticized. I think it's a blessing. At least that means that you're doing something important enough that people give a shit to like make fun of you. Yeah. It does um, seem like a, a, a necessary byproduct of impact. Let's take a quick break because when we come back, we'll continue to talk with Sam Parr. And I don't want to spoil anything, but this man has some hot takes on everything we've been talking about. Coming up after this quick break. 
Today's episode is sponsored by those fine folks over at HubSpot. Managing conversations with prospects and customers and creating a remarkable experience can be tough. HubSpot wants to change that. That's why they created a CRM platform that makes it easy to align across teams. Oh, it's so much easier. With HubSpot's unified system of record, all teams can create a better customer experience without missing a beat. We love a unified system of record. We always say that. (laughs) You can install live chat on your website and allow sales or support to get in touch with prospects directly. Or send marketing emails on behalf of sales reps or customer success managers. Not to mention, it allows prospects to book meetings with reps without wasting time. Yeah, and best of all, teams can get access to all of a contact's history so they can have more informed conversations with prospects and customers and design a better overall experience. The result, all your customer people can align around the same goals, consistently great customer journeys that drive growth and lifetime loyalty. Learn more about how you can scale your company without scaling complexity at HubSpot.com. And we're back with Sam Parr, the founder of The Hustle and the host of the My First Million podcast. Sam, I have to ask you about this because I'm so curious on your opinion, but do you subscribe to the thought that all businesses will need to also be media companies moving forward? No. I think that's bullshit, circle jerk, Silicon Valley stuff. Absolutely not. No. Tell me more about why not. Because my dad owns a produce brokerage company that, and he makes great money. Like, is he a media company? No. Mm-hmm. That, like, you don't have to be that. Not yeah. every business needs to become a media company. I hate when people say that. Yeah. So where does it come from? Why are people saying that? Because it sounds good in a quote on Twitter. Like, I'm looking <laughs> at this fucking big apartment building right across from here. Uh-huh. Are they going to have a media company? No, they no. don't care. Like, what? What? No, right. not every company needs to become a media company. If you want to do it and you want to get more customers, I think it's a great tactic. HubSpot did it by buying the hustle. They're going to make so much money from doing that. I'm in yeah. media. I love media. Does yeah. everyone, every company need to do that? Absolutely not. 100% no. I think that's a, a ridiculous no. It's interesting. I mean, and, and companies have to, what, zig when others zag or whatever that saying is, because if you're a new up-and-coming competitor that wants to compete with HubSpot, you're not going to beat HubSpot on content. And this is something that we see over and over again, where if there's a company that's already gone to market and they're very strong and they're building that media company, you know, maybe it's best for you to implement a different strategy where you're not going head-to-head from a content standpoint, which requires bigger team, more resources, Yeah, I think eventually for a lot of companies, it makes sense, but definitely not all. I think that's just such a Silicon Valley thing where they like take this like grand, like this is like this grand rule. I cannot stand when people like get in this, like they make these like grand rules. There's a thousand ways to get the same thing done. I totally agree. It can be very myopic. So then for companies that are not getting acquired by the HubSpots of the world, you know, how do you see media companies making money moving forward? We talked about how email subscribers are less important now. You, of course, started with an in-person event uh, structure, which may or may not be something that people can really do moving forward. I think the subscription business is wonderful. So the hustle, when we got acquired, we were doing a lot uh, of revenue in advertising. And, And advertising can make you a lot of money. I don't like it. But there's a lot of things I don't like, but that doesn't mean it's not good. And then we had millions of dollars in subscription revenue, and that was awesome. I love subscription revenue. I think a lot of people don't do it because they're too fearful. Typically, if you have an ad business, 
that is the opposite of what's necessary for a subscription business. So like your writers, are they going to be incentivized to go for reach or to go for keep, you know, and that's actually really hard to have both. But I think more should have subscriptions. I think there's a lot of companies that don't have B2B plays and I think they could. But in general, media is hard, man. And once HubSpot bought us and I started seeing some of the numbers and I started like learning about enterprise software, I'm like, this is way better. (laughs) (laughs) Which independent media company do you admire the most today? Reddit isn't a media company exactly, but I think that what Reddit is doing is just the greatest thing on earth. I think the nerd culture is amazing. There's a there's a niche community for everything. So like my mm-hmm. my wife was complaining for years. So my wife is black and she couldn't get her something about her hair. There was an issue with her hair. You know, I don't I don't I don't understand it entirely. And like I couldn't help her, mm-hmm. but I went on to Reddit and I'm like, hey, look, there's a there's fifty thousand people who are part of this subreddit. I think it's called like curly black curly hair or something like that. Yeah. Like there's your answer. We just found it. And so now she's like an active part of this community and she like got the answer. And I think that's like amazing. You can't find that anywhere else. I think the Financial Times are amazing. I don't love uh, what the New York Times does all the time, but I think the New York Times is like the Louis Vuitton of media. They've been around for 150 Mm. years and they're probably going to be around for another 150 years. I'm very fascinated with how they've completely pivoted their business to be this juggernaut. I had this New York Times journalist interview me and she was like, what's it feel like? You know, you're like this tech bro. And I'm like, dog. You're a tech bro. New York Times is a tech company. And that's like a compliment. What you guys have done is amazing. Mm. I can't believe you've pulled this off. What do you think about media companies selling merch? We've talked about subscription. It seems like a lot of media companies are building their own brand and selling their own branded apparel. I think it will only work for a few people. If you're Barstool, that will work. If you're the Chive, that will work. Um, Who else has that worked for? It's very hard to make a lot of money that way, I think. Who else do you think has has that worked for? Well, I think as a monetization strategy, it's not necessarily going to be a pillar of your business, but I think there are added benefits to to doing something like merchandise, it, especially if it's like you need a way to collect emails. It can be good for announcing certain projects. I think there can be a lot of ancillary benefits to it, but I, like I agree with you entirely that there are very few businesses that are going to be able to keep afloat by selling hats. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, we tried to sell this candle one time called Elon's Musk, and we got oh shut down, God. but we would have... <laughs> We would have crushed that. We would have crushed that. That's so funny. Wait, I can't believe that they shut that down. You got like a cease and desist or something? Uh, Our lawyer was like, you can't do this. You cannot sell Elon's Musk. Sam, I kind of am surprised that you listened. I think of you as someone that would maybe have been like, fuck it, we're making this candle. I should have. It's one of the biggest regrets I have, to be honest with you. You know what? Tomorrow's (laughs) another day. (laughs) (laughs) Sam. We have to wrap up, but one thing that has stuck out to me after learning more about your your background is that you're you're definitely a builder, whether that's the hot dog stand, uh, media companies, podcasts, et cetera. You know, it seems like, especially after the acquisition, you're in a moment where you're looking at, you know, the next thing sometime, maybe in the next few years. And I'm curious, what to you stands out as the most exciting next thing that you could really sink your teeth into? This will be a little bit of a weird one, but trucking in America. The American trucker, I think, has been shit on for like the past couple of decades. Wages are at an all-time low. It's it's incredibly hard job. But without trucks, we don't get the food that we want. You don't get that microphone. You don't get this. You don't get that. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. to have trucks. And I've always been fascinated about the, these problems that middle America, quote, normal people, which I yeah. identify as, and I think I, that's my roots. How do we make their lives a little bit better? And, and I think the trucking union is one of the most powerful unions. I think I might explore that. 
Awesome. Well, I'm excited to see where that road leads you. Nice. And with that, where can people find more about you and tell our listeners a little bit more about the pod? It's called My First Million. The Sam Parr is my Twitter handle. Very cool, Sam. This has been truly such a pleasure. It's been so fun to talk with you and we'll see you again soon. All right. Thank you. Hey, Rianne, are you ready to do that thing we practiced? Oh my gosh, is it time? I'm ready. Okay. Three, two, one. Don't Don't forget forget to subscribe subscribe and leave leave us us a review. review. Pretty good. (laughs) Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Production support comes from Lauren Schild. Our engineer is William Lowe with research from Corey Broccolini. And special thanks to Kyle Denhoff and Lisa Toner. We have some amazing guests coming up this season that you won't want to miss. See you next time.